Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome everyone for today's session. We have two speakers today, Duncan and Lowe. Both are members of GAI. Their topic today is India's right-wing populists. As we all know, Duncan has been doing much research on populist uh, politics, and Lowe has been doing some research on Indian political thought. So I uh, think that there will be much synergy put into this project. Without much ado, let's kick start. Right. Thank you all for coming. I was thinking when I was going back to these slides this morning that um, there's a lot of benefits to uh, sharing rides into work with your colleagues. And one of them is that um, apart from passing the time, you can actually end up with research projects out of them. That's because last year, when we lived quite near to each other, Lou often used to give me a ride into work. And one of the things that we would occasionally talk about were Lou's trips to India. Lou had been, I think, a dozen times between 2010 and 2015 to India. And I was quite curious about what was going on in India politically, and Lou was a great mind of information about all this. He'd spoken to people in various parties and activist groups and so on for his own research. And one of the questions we kept on coming back to was how could we make sense of the BJP in India? Because I knew about the BJP as a party that I would read about in The Economist or The Guardian or The New York Times as being a very much a strong Hindu nationalist party, which was quite threatening to liberal democracy in India and people that we should be quite afraid of. But at the same time, in early 2015, I would see Modi packing out, I think it was Madison Square Gardens in New York, sharing hugs with Obama. I also knew, of course, that Modi had been banned from even traveling to the United States for a long time after the riots in Gujarat in 2002. So I was trying to make sense of that, and Lou was able to help me by telling me, well, actually, people on the ground are saying this, that, and the other about the party. So we eventually came to the conclusion that we should perhaps try and, try and do some work on this. Me coming from the perspective of somebody who's worked a lot of right-wing populism in Europe, but not elsewhere. And Lou, obviously, with his knowledge about India and so on. And on that point, one of the problems with studies of political parties, and in particular populist parties, is that we all, geographically speaking, seem to think that we have the prettiest populists. If you're in Western Europe, you will focus almost exclusively on Western European populist parties. If you're in Latin America, you will think that Peron was the definitive populist, and so on. We don't tend to combine these literatures so much, and we don't tend to look comparatively that much. If you look for books on populism in Asia, you will find one book. It's an edited book, and it's very bad. There's not really much else out there. India occasionally will be included in the late 1990s in comparative edited books on populism, but then it would also drop out for periods of time. So what we're also trying to do to some extent is see, does the concept of populism travel to the BJP? And does it actually make sense to look at India comparatively in that sense in terms of its parties and their politics? So that's really the question we're looking at. We're looking at, is the BJP new or Modi, or is the BJP reflective of global rise of right-wing populism? As I'm sure you're all well aware, for several decades now, in most Western democracies, we have seen a rise of right-wing populist parties. Originally, they were just electorally successful. It was thought that it would be episodic, that they would burn brightly and crash to earth, much like Pauline Hanson in Australia in the late 1990s. But that hasn't happened. Populists haven't gone away. They've become more successful. In some cases, they've even got into government in, in advanced democracies, in places like Italy and Austria, Finland, in Norway, in the Netherlands. Even when they haven't got that much traction in terms of presence in parliament or in government, it's the 
case, for example, Mr. Farage holding his customary pint there, um, they have had very serious influences on democracy in their country. Without Farage, would we have had Brexit? So sure. And of course, the Americans, who tend to do most things bigger and better than we do in Europe, have Donald Trump, of course, is, again, an example of the rise of right-wing populist politics internationally. So that's really our question. Is the BJP reflective? Can we consider it comparatively alongside other right-wing populists that we see? So our basic research question was, does the party hold and practice a right-wing populist vision of democracy? Now, just to make it clear what we're talking about when we talk about right-wing populism, I'll just go through very briefly what we mean by that. Populism, whether it's of the right or of the left, essentially proposes a very simple division of society. <coughs> On the one hand, you have the people who are good, the moral aspect of populism. The people are good, they're virtuous, they're at one, they're homogenous, they're a community. They're also the silent majority. They are under siege from both above, in the case of right-wing populism, from below. The people under siege from above by the establishment, by the elites, the political, financial, media, intellectual, global, supranational, in the case of Europe. The elites are said to be distant from the people. They're corrupt, competent. They don't care about what the people actually want. The elites have usurped democracy. It's an important point about populism. Populism is not anti-democratic. Way. It's almost hyper-democratic. It believes that what the people, as they find the people, what the people want, the people should get. Politics should simply be an expression of the people's will. However, while populism is not anti-democratic, it is very much anti-liberal democratic. Populism does not tend to believe in the checks and balances of liberal democracy. Democracy for populists is not about limited majority rule. Democracy should not, this is very much the case for right-wing populists, Democracy should not pander to those that they consider the others, those who aren't of the people. The identity of the others can change according to the populace in whichever country we're talking about. They're usually people like immigrants, welfare recipients, some countries the might be homosexuals, communists, all those who choose by their behavior, by their beliefs, to not be part of what the populace consider the people. Okay? So that's just getting our definitions on the table. So that was our aim, to see can we find that the BJP corresponds to these ideas of people, elites, democracy, and the others, both in what they say and what they do. So in the remainder of the presentation, Lou's going to take you through background of the BJP, its history in Hindu nationalism. He's then going to move on to talk about some of the issues, some of the key issues that reflect the party's conception of democracy and practice of politics since it's come to power. And then I'm going to look at the interviews that we did last year in Delhi with people throughout the BJP. So I'll hand over to you. Thank you. Duncan. Okay, just to reinforce, we think of this study as looking at three things. One is the message that the BJP is sending, and that's a message of moderation, it's a message of global engagement, friendship with Obama, that sort of thing, um, taking advantage of globalization for the benefit of the Indian people. And then um, we're holding that message up against the actual practice of governance under the BJP, and that's what I'll be looking at. And then Duncan will come back and look at the views that officials within the BJP actually hold, which we investigated through the interviews. Okay, so I'll start with a claim. And one of the things we think is that 
you can't understand the BJP fully today without looking at the roots of the Hindu right. And these, these dig very deep indeed. So to understand the BJP's nature as a party, we can begin with efforts from the early mid-1800s to mold Hindu culture and make it dominant on the continent. And this, of course, is after several hundred years of effective rule by the Mughals, the Muslim forces who came down and took over India, ruled from Delhi for, uh, from the 1100s, and also under the British colonial period. And this was a very concerted effort to show that Hindus themselves form an ancient nation, that they're bound by a singular religion that goes back to a singular set of texts. And if you know Hinduism at all, you'll know that there are at least 200 gods that one might worship as one's principal god in your house, among your family. You could go to temples for just a plethora of gods and ring your bell and, and go do your worship. But there were some leaders, some religious leaders, some social leaders, who very much pushed this idea that the Hindu culture, the Hindu religious culture, goes back to the Vedas, these seminal religious texts from what they wanted to present as a golden age from about 1500 to 500 before current era. And there was a lot of effort put into inculcating this idea that the Vedas are the religious texts. They're the Old Testament and the New Testament, if you like, of Hinduism. So the overarching claim from these folks would be that Hindus form an ancient nation bound by this singular religion, a singular culture, and an ancient language, Sanskrit. And one of the things we're seeing today is a lot of push from the Modi government, from the BJP and the RSS to promote the teaching and learning of Sanskrit. So fast forward a little bit. I think the next person to really keep in mind would be Savarkar. And he wrote a seminal text called Hindutva. Who is a Hindu? And this text, for a lot of people, encapsulated this mission to create a Hindu culture. Savarkar laid out very clearly what he took to be the Hindu culture, the one that the right wanted to be dominant on the continent. So it boils down, if you like, to Hindu, Hindi, and Hindustan. So a people, a language, and a territory. And all these formed the Hindu nation. And he wanted to promote a Hindu public culture, and this is, I think, a very important point. Hindutva is meant to be a public culture for India that reflects Hindu language, Hindu culture, etc. If you are a Muslim, if you are a Buddhist, to some extent, uh, if you are a Christian especially, you're meant to worship in private. The public culture will reflect Hindu values. Your private worship can reflect what you believe privately. Savarkar led a very right-wing party called the Hindu Mahasabha Party, and he was implicated in Gandhi's assassination. He was not charged in that, but that was, um, that was uh, perpetrated by a very well-known right-wing activist who um, an investigation later found in the 60s had met several times with Savarkar before Gandhi's assassination. And the idea was that he might have uh, received some marching orders from him. He's revered in the BJP. Many outside the BJP consider him a fascist sympathizer. Some of the things he wrote expressed direct sympathy with the program of Nazi Germany, with the governance program of Nazi Germany. Around the same time as Hindutva comes out, you've got the formation of the RSS. And this, again, is part of the broader project of Hinduizing India, if you will, and creating Hindus who will not be conquered. 
masculinizing the Hindu race. This was a very explicit strain in a lot of the works that led up to the formation of the RSS. And here you can see the RSS uh, builds itself as a national volunteer organization. It has uh, programs for very young people. They'll come before school, after school. You can get a meal. You can get some training. And a lot of the training looks like this. It's quasi-military. So this is their uniform. And it appears they're ditching the short brown shorts now. Very, It's been a distinctive part of their uniform. But they're going to, to long trousers. But they've kept the white shirt, the brown cap, and they're training with the stick. So it's a quasi-military sort of organization, if you like, where they're trained in ways that would uh, serve to masculinize <coughs> the Hindu. The second head of the RSS was Govalkar, who is still by the BJP called Guruji, which is Guru, which is already an honorific for a teacher, Guruji, which sort of adds to the honorific. One of the things he said, which I think you'll still find to some extent in, in some of the things we're finding about the BJP is this, foreign races must adopt the Hindu culture or be subordinated to the Hindu nation. So again, that very muscular idea of a Hindu public culture. Modi wrote a book in uh, 2007 that's recently been translated and one of the chapters was devoted to Guruji, to Gowalkar. And this would be fairly controversial because again, he's one of these figures who seems to be of the scary Hindu right. And the question is, has the BJP moderated? Has the BJP moved to sort of the center right? <coughs> and given the reverence that Modi has expressed, for both Savarkar there he's honoring a painting of him, and for Guruji would suggest that these ideas, that uh, these men espoused are still very much alive. In 1951, the party is formed the BJP forerunner the uh, Bharatiya Janasang Party. It lasts until about 1979. And one thing to note is that uh, as the RSS remains closely integrated with the BJP, evidence of that is uh, Modi himself was an RSS Pracharik, which is an organizer for, for several years. That was his primary job in life. And many of those in his inner circle are directly from the RSS. And we'll see that as a repeated theme. So the RSS, its job is to promote Hindutva, and we're seeing a lot of connection between the RSS and the BJP. Some people describe the RSS as the umbrella organization under which the BJP would fall. I'm not sure we're making quite that claim. So the BJP is founded in 1980 from the remnants of the earlier party. It's explicitly committed to Hindutva in its first several manifestos. It was boosted in the 80s and the early 90s by the Babri Masjid Mosque movement. And that's the mosque right up there. In 1992, a gathering or mob, if you like, of Hindus actually tore it down. Pretty substantial building. But they actually tore it down and they did that because it's believed to be the birthplace of Lord Rama, who was the incarnation of the Hindu god Vishnu. And it's been a very symbolically charged site, one where this has been, for the Hindu rite, it's been an insult that there's a Hindu mosque atop the very site that they consider to be the birthplace of, or excuse me, not a Hindu mosque, a Muslim mosque, atop the very site they consider to be the birthplace of one of the chief Hindu gods. So it became a very big symbol for the BJP, and it helped BJP expand its footprint and increase its presence in the parliament. So as of May 2016, actually you have 9 of 29 states have a BJP chief minister. The party's effectively in charge in those states. And it's part of the ruling coalition in six other states. At the national level, it's had increasing successes. So in 1996, it led the government only for about two weeks. 
And then 98 to 2004, it led the government in coalition. From May 2014, it's been atop the government as a sole party. It has a, a sole majority in the lower house, 282 of 543 seats, for the first time. The Indian National Congress, the party of Gandhi, the party of Nehru, has fallen to a, between 40 and 50 seats. So really got thumped by the BJP in this last election and is still trying to find its way back from the wilderness of that election. I think uh, when you look at the BJP, the Modi factor these days is a big thing. I think you just need to look at the uh, current major elections. So the most populous state, Uttar Pradesh, is going to have elections next year and you don't have really the uh, person who's probably going to be the chief minister if the BJP wins uh, as the face of the BJP there. What you have is Modi coming over from Delhi, which borders UP, and leading rallies, leading campaign events. Modi has very much made himself the face of this election, just as he did the face of a previous election we'll talk about. The Gujarat riots hang over Modi, and in those riots he was the chief minister of the state of Gujarat, a uh, train load of essentially Hindu pilgrims, if you like, uh, Hindu activists, was coming back from an action, and their train caught on fire, was blamed on local Muslims. By the time it was all over, more than a thousand Muslims had been killed. Some really horrific events, you know, babies ripped from pregnant women, that sort of thing. And Modi was accused of letting it happen, of standing by and letting it happen. And that's the reason he couldn't get the visa, as Duncan mentioned. Still, he has an 81% favorable rating in the country. The BJP now is very much Modi's party. Okay. The BJP in power. Manifestos. In 2014, you're seeing a much more moderate manifesto. In fact, there's no mention this time of Hindutva. The party is positioning itself in the center-right as a nationalist party, but a mild nationalist party, if you like. There's still a vision of Indian history and culture, and this is Hindu, ancient Hindu history and culture. In the manifesto, many great Hindu figures are mentioned. You won't find a great Muslim leader mentioned. There's no Shah Jahan in the history of Indian civilization. There's certainly no British figure. So very much still this view of the Vedic golden age and the recreation of that golden age under Mr. Modi. The policies. So when we're looking at the stance, at what the BJP has actually done in practice in <coughs> governance, I think the place to look is not the legislative initiatives because most of those have been blocked in the upper house, which the Congress still controls. What we would hold is that the place to look for what the BJP is doing in practice would be its stances on symbolically charged issues. And these have become much more clear since the BJP lost in the Bihar election. So that's, I think, the third most populous state. You know, if it were a country, it'd be the eighth most populous country in the world. But this is India we're talking about. So it's, it's only the third most populous state. In November 2015, Modi was campaigning very hard. In the last two weeks, he campaigned really hard on nationalist issues. So a lot of dog whistling about uh, threats from Muslims, a lot on cow protection, which is a big symbolic issue for Hindus, as I'll mention. And they lost badly. So they lost badly, not to the Congress, but to another party. There's a major education bill to come. That hasn't come out yet. But the thing I want to point out, I want to go a little more quickly here, is that since the loss in Bihar, we've seen much more of a shift in practice, at least, to what appear to us to be 
nationalist, very much nationalist stance, very much Hindutva stance on cow protection, on anti-national sentiments and sedition, Muslim immigration, the critics will say that what they're seeing is a rising intolerance for those outside of true Indian people. So what are the anti-national charges? Well, there was an event at JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University, named for the, the first prime minister, in January 2016, where the student president of JNU was criticizing the RSS, calling for more action on poverty. It was actually an event to uh, critically mark the third anniversary of the execution of um, a Muslim who was convicted of attacking the parliament, the Indian parliament, in 2001. And he was tried, he was eventually executed, and that's been, for those who oppose the death penalty, a point of action for them. And that's what this was about. There were accusations that there were anti-national slogans. And by that they mean uh, long live Pakistan, they mean slogans about how um, Kashmir should be should belong to Pakistan, that sort of thing. And the student president was accused of making some of these statements. There was video circulated that actually later turned out to be doctored. That's important here because one of the spokesmen we talked to actually, Sambit Patra, had that video on TV and was showing it. He was saying, well, here, I've got the video to prove to you that this young man is guilty of anti-national statements. And he played the video, but it was later found to have been doctored. There were doctored tweets circulating, were supposedly saying, long live Pakistan, that sort of thing. He's denounced by many, many BJP leaders, including many of the ones we were talking to, arrested, charged with sedition under a colonial era law, and he's actually attacked outside the courthouse. And later, protesters supporting him are attacked by lawyers outside the courthouse. So it's been very, very much a, a hot-button issue, a flash issue. JNU has long been a center of left activism. It's now being targeted by the party. The party's president, who's very powerful, Ahmed Shah, said it's a center which encourages terrorism and separatism, this anti-national idea, resonant, if you like, of the uh, House on American Activities period in the United States. Another issue which critics claim is um, an instance of rising intolerance and a, a narrowing of who the people appropriately are considered to be in India would be on Dalit issues. So former untouchables, now called Dalits, that's what most people call themselves if they're in, in this group. 200 million in India, they still face widespread exclusions, um, violence, sexual assaults uh, in, in disproportionate numbers because of caste status for the most part. In January 2016, there was a suicide of a PhD student at the University of Hyderabad, Rohit Vemula. That became another one of those uh, flashpoint issues because the central ministry, the Human Resources Development Ministry, was accused of intervening in the case because he was accused of going after some students in the student wing of the BJP, some right-wing students, and he was accused of attacking them. It appears the, uh, the charges, many of them may have been trumped up. It appears that he was targeted. The ministry sent apparently five letters pressuring the university administration to do something about him. There was an investigation actually that cleared him, but then the administration came back and suspended his funding. And essentially that meant that he wouldn't be able to continue his studies, and he was found hanged in his room. This death has sparked nationwide protests, uh, Dalit anger at the BJP. Before this, the BJP was really courting Dalits. In fact, the Dalits voted for the BJP it appears in larger numbers across the country than uh, they did for the Congress, which would be a first-time uh, thing. So here, 
this event seems to have lost ballots for the BJP, and it's also brought a number of other critics to the fore, and people are saying this evidence of entrenched casteism. One of the things we're now seeing is a renewal of mass conversion of Dalits to Buddhism. So there's a big planned mass conversion on the birth anniversary of the leader, the famous Dalit leader from the 20th century, B.R. Ambedkar. His birth anniversary is in December, and apparently there are going to be you know, possibly hundreds of thousands of people converting en masse to Buddhism, sending a message to the BJP. And I will skip over the internationally oriented Dalit activists. Duncan will come back to that. For about 10 years, Dalit activists have been um, going to the United Nations trying to pressure the Indian government to do more on caste discrimination. And the officials we were talking to were very critical of that indeed, and painting it as this idea that uh, Dalits are among those groups trying to break India in cahoots with Christians from the outside. And then finally, two more. Cow slaughter has become one of the big issues. And here, 24 of the 29 states restrict cow slaughter to some extent. The cow, of course, is a revered animal in Hindu religion. and should not be slaughtered if you're an observant Hindu. There are 30,000 illegal slaughterhouses nonetheless. Dalit and Muslim communities traditionally have been eaters of beef. Now whether that's cow or whether that's buffalo. And they've been targeted by mobs. So mobs have been, some would charge, using this as an excuse to go after people they'd want to go after anyway. But you've got these cow protection commando forces roaming the country. And they found this guy in a truck that had four dead cows in it. They were waiting for him. They'd been tipped off about him. They stopped the truck, yanked him out, stripped off all his clothes, and beat him, as you can see. This was on social media. Modi has been criticized for being slow to condemn, and other BJP officials have made inflammatory comments, and Modi has been criticized for being slow to tell them to stop doing that. A number of authors returned their literary awards over this kind of thing, and Sonia Gandhi, who still heads the Indian National Congress led a march through uh, central Delhi to protest what she called an atmosphere of fear, intolerance, and intimidation. And finally, one of the policy stances we're seeing is on immigration. And this is in the northeastern state of Assam, where the claim from the BJP is that immigrants, now tell me if you've heard this before, if you've been watching the U.S. election, immigrants have been coming in and tipping the election away from Hindu parties because they've been coming in from Bangladesh and voting in the elections. That's probably highly unlikely because you would have to speak Assamese, uh, which is a very different language than Bengali. But also, there's not a whole lot to draw immigrants. There's not a lot of evidence that there's a large-scale immigration flowing into Assam from Bangladesh because Bangladesh is actually much richer now than Assam. But what you do have is a long-standing population of Muslims, several million, who did come from Bangladesh, but they came uh, many years ago. So the government there, which the BJP just won the election there, has pledged to seal the very long border, well, the 260-kilometer border with security fence, it looks like that, and then with extra technology and extra guards to stop this flood of immigrants that the BJP will say is coming across. And then another thing the party may try to do, they've, they've sort of floated this as something they might like to do, is reclassify millions of Bangladeshi Muslims, people who've been settled there in Assam since 1971, but not Hindus. They came before 1971, reclassify them as refugees, and require them to reapply for Indian citizenship. If Hindus came over from Bangladesh and settled in Assam, they would already be treated as Hindu refugees and they would be automatically able to get citizenship. So again, a, a narrowing of who, who properly belongs to the people.
Okay. As Lou mentioned, we spoke to a lot of people in the BJP last year in Delhi. I won't, for reasons of time, go right through exactly who we talked to, but just to say, basically went from the top of the party right down, from current ministers, former ministers, people in state executives in Delhi, right down to the leader of what could be considered the BJP's youth wing, some representative of the Muslim cell within the party, they actually call it the Muslim cell themselves, that's not my terminology. And what we were looking for was beyond, obviously, the image of the new BJP under Modi, which is focused on development, which is hugging Obama, which isn't stressing Hindutva, as Lou mentioned in his manifesto. Can we find, when we talk to people within the BJP, indications that actually the fundamental values of the party are relatively unchanged, and that do they reflect what we expect to see of right-wing populism. I showed you this slide earlier on, just to refresh in your memory. We expect to see these types of conceptions of the people, of the elites, democracy, and of others. Okay? So, as regards the people, what we found essentially in our interviews very clearly was the conception of the people, yes, as being... As being Hindu, essentially, they're people who are, and I'm just going to go through a whole series of quotes which are bull-faced, what I think perhaps are the most interesting little snapshots, also for simply reasons of time. I won't read them all out entirely. So essentially the people are Hindu, and as Lou said, Hindu can be anybody who's in India, including Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, and so on. They're people who are born here and who are loyal to this land important. Anyone living in, in India is a Hindu. And it's about belonging, but it's about belonging to the Indian identity. Okay? You must subscribe to those values. You must follow, being Hindu means following the values that Hindutva enforces. And the people are seen by the BJP as being fundamentally one. As I said, divisions within society are essentially created by the establishment, by the elites, by Congress, by intellectuals, by the media. India is one and India is harmonious. The politicians may try to divide sometimes, but they don't succeed. Except is just in the mind of politicians. So again, that's the, exactly the same type of claim I used to find in Western Europe when I would speak to people who write in the populist parties there. There's the claim that Congress has always misguided the people, but the BJP wants to bring the people back together, to bring the nation back together as one. That's also because only the BJP is actually close to the people. The claim you'll often hear is that, yes, it's the BJP which goes into villages, spends time amongst the people, in contrast to Rahul Gandhi, who will fly in, bring his own personal cook, and so on. So the image of the BJP is close to the people. The elites, Congress, are far from people. Again, bog-standard rather populist claims. Okay? They claim it suits the Congress to keep people illiterate and uneducated, because, of course, they'll keep on voting for them. The elites, first and foremost, for the BJP, is the Congress Party, and in particular the Gandhi family, because of course the two are inextricably linked for the BJP. They claim this Sonia Gandhi and Rahul Gandhi, you see in the picture there, obviously conspiring together, um, <laughs> whispering behind the backs of the people. Um, Congress is known very much amongst all our interviewees as the family party. They all repeat this mantra. Congress, the family party, the family business. Okay? The only ideology Congress has apparently is the family, the upkeep of the family. Unlike the BJP. In the BJP, the party is like a family. In Congress, the family is the party. 
Congress is seen as being very much, as I say, distant from the people, wanting to keep the people backward, illiterate, and so on. And um, one of the reasons, of course, Congress is distant from the people, you will hear occasionally, is that Sonia Gandhi, of course, is originally from Italy. She's not from India, basically. There's the repeated claim that the Gandhi family, which, of course, controls Congress, is very far removed from the realities of India. They don't know how to live in India. It's the BJP National Vice President who told us that. And the people, in other words, the BJP and the people, have doubts about the, the Gandhi family's patriotism to the country. We, the people of India, think they have more faith in Italy than India. So while Congress are obviously bad elite number one, there are others. And again, they're the same types of elites that we find in the rhetoric and the discourses of other right-wing populist parties. So academics, for example. Academics are seen in Indian universities as essentially being a bunch of Marxists, much as academics are the world overseen. Marxists and communist scholars, Congress had essentially outsourced universities to, to the left in India, and these people promote anti-national ideas. That's why you're seeing the types of problems that you're seeing at universities like JNU, which Lou mentioned. Educational institutions don't do their job in the, in the BJP's opinion, because instead of unifying people, they break the people. Intellectuals, like Congress politicians, create divisions amongst the people. Intellectuals and NGOs are seen as enemies <coughs> external to the people who try to defame the BJP in India. NGOs are always trying to defame India because India is progressing. By Congress, they want to hold the Indian people back. They malign the image of the country, both Indian scholars and foreign scholars too. We're all complicit in this. The people are not only suffering due to the actions of all this series of bad elites, but also the others. And the others for the BJP remain, first and foremost, Muslims. Now, the BJP offers a rhetoric which, I have to say, reminds me to some extent of the kind of things that Pauline Hansen says. Hansen will often say, we need to treat everybody equally so we should have no special privileges for Aboriginal people. Let's just let people get on on their own merits and so on. The BJP says similar things about Muslims. They said, we're not looking at them with vote bank. We're looking at them as Indians. We want them to work for themselves. They shouldn't have any special privileges. Patronize Let's just treat them like everyone else, which of course ignores some of the objective difficulties that some Muslim communities suffer. Other interviewees were rather more explicit about what they saw the problem with Muslims in India being. This is the Minister for Transport, Nitin uh, Gadkari, former president of the BJP, who said the Muslim population is increasing, and he explicitly links that to things like the appeasement of terrorists. It's a problem. It's a problem that the Muslim population is increasing. Uh, former Foreign and Finance Minister uh, Yashwan Sinha told us that, again, there's a problem. There isn't a problem with Hindu fundamentalism in India. There's a problem with Muslim fundamentalism, which then creates the reaction amongst Hindus. So it's not us, it's you. You're the ones creating all the problems. Again, we find claims that Congress doesn't want just to keep the real people, the Hindu people of India, um, poor and backward. They want to do the same with the Muslims as well, because Muslims overwhelmingly vote for Congress. Congress wants um, Muslims to remain backward, to keep on producing 10 children so they can all vote for Congress. Congress is also seen as standing alongside all those other bad elites I went through already, intellectuals, people in universities and so on. Congress stands against the sentiment of the majority of people. They stand up for the cause of the anti-national. So, for example, when Congress will express fears about what's going on in university campuses, they are too being anti-national. They're starting with the enemies of the people. And these enemies of the people in the campuses 
as Liz said, in places like, like JNU, University <coughs> of Delhi, what they're doing is it's anti-national behavior, it's traitorous, disloyal behavior to your own country, just like other groups within society, for example, like Dalit groups, who, who Lou mentioned as well, are seen as destroying the unity of the Indian community. And in fact, again, the former foreign minister, and I think twice finance minister, Yashwan Sunit, said to us very clearly that when it comes to NGOs or Dalit groups which seek international intervention, uh, seek justice at an international level, I didn't put the full quote in, he actually began that by saying they should probably be sent to Guantanamo, and that anyone who doesn't believe in the sovereignty of India doesn't deserve to live here. Which brings me finally to their idea of democracy. Although anyone who doesn't believe in the idea of India doesn't have the right to live there, the BJP does claim that they are the true democratic party, which again, most populists do. Populists claim that they're the real democrats, they're the ones saving democracy for the people against the elites who have usurped democracy. They're Democrats, they're not necessarily liberal Democrats. And in order to have democracy, what you need again is justice for all, and an appeasement for none. So none of this special treatment of minorities of people who are, are suffering within society. We need harmony, we need to have the rights of the majority respected, whether it's on beef or other issues. Because fundamentally what counts is the sentiment and demand of the people. So if 80% of the people in India think that you shouldn't eat beef, you shouldn't eat beef. You should, you should respect that. Okay, so overall what we find in our interviews is fairly clear correspondence with what we would expect to find from right-wing populists, which I found in my research previously among right-wing populists in terms of their conceptions of the people, the elites, the others, and democracy. So finally, hand back to Lou for some very quick conclusions. So what do we take from all this? The question again was, does the BJP, which has positioned itself as a moderate, developmentally oriented party, actually hold and put into practice a right-wing populist vision of democracy? The answer is yes. While the BJP's legislative program has been stalled, has not indicated a hard right turn, officials' views and the governing stances we're seeing at state and national level send strong signals about who is to be included in its vision of the nation and who's not to be included. So the broader significance and future research indications, what we would say is this. The BJP has long had populist tendencies. It's, it's no surprise to anyone that this is a right-wing, far-right-wing nationalist party, though it has become more moderate and inclusive in some of its communications, the stance, the message it wants to project. Its importance has grown with, grown with its size and influence in India, and I think we forgot to mention that it is now the largest political party in the entire world. It is, it's had a big registration drive under the BJP, and it's surpassed the Communist Party in actual registered members now. Chinese Communist Party. Yes, yes. I didn't mean the Indian Communist Party. I meant the Chinese Communist Party, yes. And then uh, India's rising significance globally, we think, enhances the significance of the BJP, of what the BJP is and what it's able to do in its country and in the world. So we would say indications for future research to better understand the party and other Indian parties, we need to examine them comparatively alongside parties in other democracies. There's relatively little work like this out there, but we think what we found indicates that this could be important work. And if you don't believe me on the importance of comparing India with other kinds of populist parties, we'll just let them tell you. <laughs> so they know, they know who their friends are. <laughs>